0: On the night of July 14th, 1881, Sheriff Pat Garrett killed Billy the Kid. In doing so, he not only helped create a legend, but also ensured that his legacy would be forever intertwined with that of the notorious outlaw. And let's be honest, it ain't that great of a legacy. Many consider Garrett to be a coward at best, a no-good backstabbing old West Judas who betrayed his best friend for a handful of silver. What's more, Pat is also labeled as a liar and an egomaniac. A glory seeker who would turn on his own mother if that meant earning a little dough and building his own reputation. And over 26 years after he gunned down the kid, Pat himself would be shot and killed under similar circumstances. A murder that to this day remains unsolved. Who killed Pat Garrett? How accurate is the narrative surrounding the former sheriff of Lincoln County? Is all of this hate deserved? And who the hell was Garrett anyway? What was his life like before he met Billy the Kid? and what became of Pat in the decades following that fateful night at Fort Sumner. You may think you know who Pat Garrett is, but I guarantee you've never heard his story told quite like this. We're going to do quite a bit of fact-checking in this series and hopefully dispel a few myths. We're also going to look into some new information showing that the infamous Billy the Kid may have possibly not been of this world. Oh yeah, we're going intergalactic on this bad boy. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. Patrick Floyd Jarvis Garrett was born on June 5th, 1850 in Chambers County, Alabama. He wouldn't stay there for long, though. As his father, John Lumpkin Garrett, a farmer by trade, would move the family to Claiborne Parish, Louisiana, in 1853, John purchased a large plantation just outside the town of Antioch, and it's there that Pat would do most of his growing up. And boy, oh boy, did he grow! In a day and age where the average American male was just five foot five inches tall, Garrett dwarfed his peers at a whopping six foot four inches. At least he did by the time he reached early adulthood. A future business partner would remember Pat as the tallest, most long-legged specimen I ever saw. Now, what role young Pat played on the family farm is unknown. The Garretts did have slaves, at least 34, according to one census. I imagine they did the bulk of the heavy lifting around the plantation, but Pat would later allude to doing the usual chores of plowing, hoeing, and even a little clerking. He also spent a considerable amount of time out in the woods with his pawpaw's old rifle hunting small game and otherwise becoming a proficient marksman, as country boys and girls tend to do. Garrett did receive an education, and despite what you may have heard, he was far from illiterate, although how much schooling he truly attended is anyone's guess. Same goes for church. Story goes that Pat began questioning organized religion fairly early in life, leading many to suspect that he was of an atheistic or agnostic bent. And I will discuss this more later on in the series. Now, the Garrett Plantation covered 1,800 acres, and one record shows that at least on one occasion, the family delivered a load of 65 mule-drawn wagons to the market, each loaded to the brim with produce and cotton. 65! So needless to say, the family was doing well. The prosperous times would not last forever, though, and when disaster struck, it seemed to do so in waves. Although Pat's daddy John was exempt from serving during the Civil War, the conflict would ultimately wreak havoc on the plantation. Obviously, the Garretts would lose their large force of slave labor, hard to feel sorry for them on that account, and when U.S. troops occupied Louisiana, they reportedly confiscated a good portion of the Garrett cotton, causing the family to quickly go broke. Pat's mother Elizabeth died in March 1867 at the young age of 38, and John, already in poor health and deeply in debt, sank into the bottle, and followed his wife to the grave in February of the following year. So in short succession, Pat and his siblings lost their family property, i.e. their wealth, and both of their parents. And Pat, by the time of his father's death, was still a few months shy of his 18th birthday. What remained of John Garrett's estate was fought over, with Pat's no-good brother-in-law, guy with the insanely ridiculous name of Larkin Lay, coming out on top. Pat didn't much appreciate the way Larkin was handling business, but it's not exactly clear if this was justified. On one hand, Lay did begin selling off all the Garrett family possessions. On the other hand, Pat's daddy left the family $30,000 in the hole, and someone had to handle all those debtors who came calling. Nevertheless, Pat threatened to kill Larkin, and not just because of his goofy name, but legend has it that out of love for his sister Margaret, he refrained. So instead of committing murder, a still-teenaged Garrett simply left Louisiana for the Lone Star State sometime in January of 1869. The next few years are a bit murky. Uh, By Pat's own admission, he first took up work on a farm in Dallas County for a couple of years before signing on with a cattle outfit. How many herds he helped drive up north to Kansas is not known, but Pat would spend around two or three years on the hurricane deck of a cow pony before moving on. Stuart Lake, in his book Wyatt Earp Frontier Marshal, claims that Garrett and a few other Texas cowpokes once attempted to tree Dodge City, forcing Wyatt and Doc Holliday to arrest him. Whether this is true or not, I don't know. I'm also not sure how Wyatt would have known who Pat was back in those days, but as we'll soon discuss, it is verified that Pat did indeed spend at least a little time in Dodge. We just don't know if he did so as a cowboy or a little later on. Sometime in the mid-1870s, Garrett and his buddy, a guy by the name of Luther Duke, partnered up on their own cotton-slash-corn farm, but it would be a short-lived venture. Guess it proved to be way more work and far less money than they had hoped, so the pair turned instead to the lucrative hide business. They threw in with the tough Civil War veteran Skelton Glenn and a young Irishman Joe Briscoe and set out for West Texas in search of bison. Now, their first stop was Fort Griffin. 50 miles to the northeast of present-day Abilene, Texas, where they picked up a couple of hired hands. A skinner by the name of Nick Buck and a camp cook who called himself Grundy Burns. And aside from Cookie, that's about as old west of a cook name as you can imagine. Grundy. I don't know that I'd eat anything cooked by somebody named Grundy, but who knows? I'm sure his biscuits were excellent. They also picked up some brand new hardware there at Fort Griffin. Tools of the trade. Skelton and Duke both chose the powerful sharps rifles, with Pat opting instead for a much lighter Winchester. And after stocking up on necessary provisions, the team lit out for Buffalo Country, ultimately setting up camp near the Double Mountains, about a 100 miles to the west of the fort. And they got to killing Buffalo. How many, I do not know. According to Leon Metz in his book, Pat Garrett, The Story of a Western Lawman, a good hunter could take down anywhere from 60 to 100 of the shaggy beast per day. Of course, there wasn't no point in shooting more than your skinners could clean, and it's said that a good knife man could only handle around 60 to 75 per day. I can't imagine that was very fun work. I also imagined you'd be smelling pretty ripe after skinning out 60 plus buffalo. Not like there was a whole hell of a lot of places for these boys to take a bath. Now, if you're not familiar with the methods used to hunt buffalo back in those days, it's my understanding that they'd locate the bison, post up far enough away so as not to spook the herd, and then commence shooting. Apparently, if a buffalo is dropped with a well-placed shot, what a cousin of mine refers to as the Smackdown, the others won't stampede off. They'll simply continue grazing or even plod on over to see why their fallen comrade decided to take a nap. So long as Garrett and the others didn't scare the herd, they could pretty much just sit in one spot and kill one after another after another. So much so that they would need to stop every now and then just to either cool down the barrels of the rifles or switch out guns entirely. And it's pretty much in this fashion that the great herds were nearly wiped out. It's estimated that in the year 1830, there were around 40 million American bison roaming the Great Plains. By 1870, just five and a half million. And by the time Pat Garrett and his pals were done, the population had dwindled to just around 400,000. And of course, by the turn of the century, there were only 300 left in the entire country. Thankfully, the population has since rebounded, and at present, there are around 350,000. You know, I'm not sure if these buffalo hunters really fathomed what they were doing. I don't think they were out there laughing like maniacs, high-fiving each other for their part and driving the buffalo to extinction. I don't know that they believed that was even possible. I also don't know that the vast majority of them had ulterior motives, like starving out the Native Americans or anything like that. I think they were just purely in it for the money and not giving too much of a thought as to what the future held. And it showed. I mean, they'd only take the hide, along with the tongue and a few other choice cuts of meat, leaving the rest just to rot. Now those fresh skins, also known as green hides, were taken back to camp, stretched and pegged to the ground, and once they were dry, they were piled up in various stacks, depending on grade and quality. Sometimes the buyers would come to you, and sometimes you just had to load everything up in your wagon and make the long trip back to civilization. Garrett and the boys could get around $2 per hide, with prices scaled down accordingly based on size and quality, of course. So just some quick math. Not my strong suit, but let's say Pat was killing 65 buffalo a day. That comes out to $2 times 65 is 130 right? Which back then was like the rough equivalent to $3,500. Even if he split that 50-50 with the Skinner, which I doubt he did, that's still a very good payday. That said, it's not like they were out there killing bison every single day. I imagine they went through quite a few dry spells, during which they had nothing better to do but sit around and irritate each other. You know how it goes. Whenever us men are forced to be around one another for day on end, as we suffer through the monotony of labor and boredom and a shortage of female companionship, nerves can get a little raw around the edges. And we can definitely start pushing each other's buttons, as was the case in November of 1876. The buffalo seemed to peter out, and the weather turned gloomy. Skelton Glenn had left for a nearby way station, Wrath City, in order to have a gun repaired, and the remaining men in camp were in a foul mood. Grundy Burns, the cook, had spent the better part of several hours attempting to get a fire started with wet buffalo chips while Joe Briscoe was trying, and failing, to do laundry in a freezing cold rain puddle. As he approached the smoldering fire, he held his hands out for warmth and grumbled, mostly to himself, about how hard it was to keep anything clean out there on the plains. Garrett, who was also stepping close to the fire, decides to get smart and say that nobody but a damn Irishman would be dumb enough to try to wash anything in that muddy water. And, well, this sets Briscoe off. Counts vary. What else is new, right? But apparently, Briscoe began mouthing off right back to Pat, saying, Yes, and you damn Americans think you are damn smart and know a damn sight which prompted Pat to reach on over and pop Joe in the mouth, knocking him on his ass. Joe gets up and rushes at Garrett, only to be swatted away. He rushes again, and once more, Garrett knocks him down. This process is repeated a couple more times before Briscoe goes for an axe and begins chasing Pat around the cook wagon. Eventually, Garrett gets tired of running, picks up his Winchester, and blasts the hole in Joe, sending him falling back into that tiny little buffalo shit fire. Everyone rushes in to help pull him out, but there wasn't no patching up Joe's wound. Now take this next part with a grain of salt, but allegedly Joe then called Pat over to him and asked him, Pat Garrett, the man who just shot him, for forgiveness. Pat said that yes, he forgave him, and Joe expired around 20 minutes later. Per sources, Pat then saddles a horse and takes off alone onto the prairie, greatly distressed at what had just transpired. He returns the following morning, looking ragged as hell, to find that Skelton Glenn has also returned, and the two men discuss the unfortunate chain of events. Glenn then suggests that Pat ride on over to Fort Griffin and surrender to the authorities. He does so, but returns a few days later, saying that the officials had declined to press charges. Is this true? I got no idea. I'm not aware of anyone ever locating any sort of documents from Fort Griffin proving or disproving as much nor do I necessarily know that there would have been any such proof, even if Pat did attempt to turn himself in. We've discussed this ad nauseum here on the Wild West Extravaganza. People got off scot-free from killings all the damn time back in those days, especially in Texas. So yeah, I think there is a good chance that Garrett turned himself in, and I think there's as good of a chance that the authorities at the fort told him that they had bigger things to worry about and just to get on back to hunting buffalo. Now, this is probably as good a time as any to discuss the sources used when examining our topic du jour, Pat Garrett. I feel like it's important to point out that not all of the info we have about Pat just comes from his book, The Authentic Life of Billy the Kid. I think this is important, mostly due to how many people consider Garrett to be a very unreliable source. And don't worry, we will be touching on his bad reputation later on in this series. That said, the story of Briscoe's death and much of what we know about Pat's time as a buffalo hunter comes straight from his partner, Skelton Glenn. Now, obviously, Glenn wasn't there when Pat shot Joe, but he would have certainly heard the details from the others. One thing to keep in mind, though, is that many years later, Skelton would develop a very strong dislike towards Garrett. As such, his account of Pat's life should also be taken with a grain of salt. Everybody, and I mean everybody, has some form of bias and some type of an agenda. That's just human nature, I guess. The trick when it comes to history, as far as I can tell, is taking all of the available information, letters, interviews, eyewitness accounts, court documents, along with the autobiographies, and then try to piece the evidence all together. It's not always the easiest task, but until someone invents time travel, that's the best we can do. We can't wholly discount questionable sources like the authentic life of Billy the Kid or the words of Skelton Glenn but we should also not be afraid to cast a somewhat skeptical eye on their musings as well. Now, as far as the authentic life of Billy the Kid goes, as you're likely aware, Pat did employ Ash Upson as a ghostwriter. It's pretty much agreed upon by historians that the first 15 chapters of the book, written in a very melodramatic style, are purely the work of Upson, while the other chapters, less flowery and written in the first person, likely come from Garrett himself. And these chapters are considered to be much more factually accurate than those that Upson wrote. Like I said, though, to dismiss this book entirely would be a huge disservice to history. Now, I've personally used a few different sources for this series. One I've already mentioned, Pat Garrett, The Story of a Western Lawman by Leon Metz, which is said to be the definitive Garrett biography. Another book I found extremely valuable was Mark Lee Gardner's To Hell on a Fast Horse. Both Metz and Gardner are great writers, very serious when it comes to accuracy, and both works have an extensive collection of notes, along with bibliographies. And the same goes for Robert Utley's Billy the Kid, A Short and Violent Life, which I also found myself returning to. So if you're interested in learning more or really diving deep into the source material, discovering why historians believe what they do about certain events, definitely check out these books. Links to all of them in the show notes. Alright, let's get back to the story. Shortly after the killing of Briscoe, Pat and the others fell prey to several aggressions from the hostiles upon whose land they were trespassing. In early February of 1877, the Comanche struck Garrett's camp and destroyed 800 hides, along with making off with a few ponies. None of the hunters were unfortunate enough to have been in camp at the time, but you better believe they were looking to even up the score. Skelton Glenn raised a force of some 40-odd hunters who happened to be in the area, and they all rode out to teach the offending Comanche a lesson. Sans Pat Garrett. Why didn't Pat go with them? Well, he thought it was a stupid idea. Said it was simply a raiding party and that it was far too late to do anything about the damage. And it turns out he was correct. This punitive expedition, which was somewhat fueled by whiskey, turned out to be a failure, and after a brief battle with the Comanche, they returned with one man wounded and zero horses retrieved. A similar raid occurred in May, this one with the white captive Herman Lehman as a participant. Matter of fact, Herman even had his horse shot out from underneath him by Skelton Glenn. In return, Glenn himself received either a bullet or an arrow to the leg, not sure which one, as he and another hide hunter by the name of Dauphin took refuge from behind a knoll and watched as their buffalo hides were burned or otherwise hacked apart. Once more, Garrett was not in camp when this occurred. When he heard what happened from a passerby, he lit out for the safety of Fort Griffin where he and Skelton Glenn and the others were reunited. They returned to their pillage camp with a couple of wagons and retrieved what few intact hides they could find and sold them off for just enough money to purchase some round-trip tickets to St. Louis. And once in the big city, Garrett quickly gambled away his remaining money as he and the boys decided on a change of careers. By the way, Garrett did love to gamble, and that's really an understatement. This was a pretty major vice and something that would dog him for the entirety of his life. Alright, now. Although I just covered Pat's time as a buffalo hunter rather quickly, the events described did take place from early 1876 until the spring of 1878, so a little over two years. And they weren't constantly out there in the middle of nowhere harvesting buffalo. In the off-seasons, or in the summer, when the hides weren't no good anyways, it's said that Garrett and his partners would hang out not only in St. Louis, but also places like Dodge City. This could be how the story of him and Wyatt Earp coming face-to-face came into being. Also, Pat would later state that he met Bat Masterson in Dodge during one such break. As I alluded to earlier, Pat and Skelton Glenn's friendship would sour in the years to come. And this friction may be at least part of the reason why Pat is considered so untrustworthy. It seems that Skelton never got over losing all them hides to the Comanche. In the 1890s, he'd go so far as to file an Indian depredation claim of nearly $15,000 against the U.S. government asserting that the Warriors had violated a peace treaty by ransacking his camp. Glenn asked Pat to take the stand and testify on his behalf, which he did in the year 1899, over two decades after the attacks in question. And, well, Garrett's testimony didn't help Glenn's cause. To the contrary, it actually hurt his case quite a bit. According to Pat, the total value of hides destroyed was nowhere near the $15,000 he was asking for, but rather less than a 1000 bucks. Now, why Pat didn't play ball... I'm not sure. Seems like there must be something else going on here. Previously, I mentioned that the 800 hides were destroyed in just one raid. That alone comes out to more than $1,000. So I guess the question is, who's telling the truth? If Garrett was lying about the extent of damages, why? And if Garrett was telling the truth at the detriment of his old friend's wallet, also, why? Were there truly 800 hides destroyed, or was that a number that Glenn just made up? Unfortunately, I do not have any answers for you. This debacle would drag on for years and years, even after Garrett's death. In 1912, once Pat was in the dirt, Glenn really ramped up the shit-talking about his former partner. I assume this was done to discredit Pat's claims about the hides and thus solidify his own case. Glenn testified that Garrett was a drunk, that he disappeared from the scene after the death of Briscoe, that he and the others were afraid that the lanky lawman would murder them in their sleep, and he even claimed that Pat wasn't really his business partner at all. And apparently, like I said, all of this was just to show that Pat's testimony wasn't worth a damn. What's more, Skelton found others to back his slander up. People who had, interestingly enough, previously testified that Pat's reputation was beyond reproach now changed their tune, accusing him of everything from not paying his debts to being an atheist, or in their words, an infidel, which, as it turns out, was true on both accounts. Uh, We'll get to that later. In the end, Skelton Glenn was awarded $4,150 in damages. And once again, while his memoir on Pat's time as a buffalo hunter is an excellent source, hell, the only source, really, when it comes to that time period, certain things should be taken for what they are. The writings of a man who had a deep grudge against the feller he was writing about. Someone who was dead and in the ground and not able to defend himself. That was all years to come, though. In the meantime, Pat Skelton and Nick Buck were all still buddy-buddy, and for whatever reason, they decided to call it quits on the Buffalo hide business, abandon their wagons, and head west for the land of enchantment, finally arriving at Fort Sumner, New Mexico in the spring of 1878. I've spoken about Sumner many times in the past, so feel free to check out the episode I did on the first Battle of Adobe Walls, as well as the series on Billy the Kid. Links in the show notes. TLDR, Sumner was established in 1862 to protect settlers from hostile natives who did not invite the settlers there in the first place. This was also where the Bosque Redondo was located, a so-called reservation where several thousand Navajo and Mescalero Apache were forced to live in squalor until 1868 when the Navajo were allowed to return home. The fort, which was a legitimate military installation, was abandoned in 69 and purchased by former fur trapper-turned cattleman Lucian Maxwell, who moved his family there along with a few other Hispanic and Native American families. They planted crops, started running cattle and sheep, dammed the Pecos River for irrigation, turned the army barracks into real living quarters, and hell, by the time Garrett and his buddies arrived at Fort Sumner, the community boasted of a store, a dance hall, and even a couple of saloons. Not sure how many people lived there in 1878, but by 1881, Fort Sumner boasted a population of 285 souls. Just for a little perspective, the town of Lincoln to the south had a population of 638 that same year. Lucian passed away in 1875, so at the time of Pat's arrival, it was his oldest son, Pete Maxwell, who had the run of the place. Now, Pat and company were pretty near broke when they reached the fort, and hungry to boot. The boys spent their last dollar fifty on some bacon and flour and settled down on the banks of the Pecos for breakfast, after which Garrett sauntered on over and secured them work for Pete Maxwell, punching cattle. Now, Pete initially claimed that he did not need any help, likely on account of Pat's appearance. According to Fort Sumner resident Paco Anea, Pat looked like a quote-unquote tramp. And Lincoln County Regulator George Coe would later remember that Pat and his friends were the hardest set of men I believe I ever saw. But Garrett did eventually win Maxwell over, saying that he could ride anything but hair and rope better than any man you've got here. And just like that, Pat was hired. Be that as it may, Skelton Glenn and Ross would not stay there at Fort Sumner for very long. They soon bid Pat adieu and headed back to Texas. Garrett, however, found himself enamored with New Mexico, especially the ladies who took to calling him Juan Largo on account of his tall frame. Pat became a regular fixture at the various balls and dances put on at Sumner and the surrounding communities, made friends easily, and by all accounts, he was wholly accepted by the locals. According to Paulita Maxwell, Pat was, quote, an easygoing, agreeable man, a good storyteller and full of dry humor. He was fond of a social glass and was a great hand to play poker and Monty, end quote. No word on whether Garrett ever courted Paulita, but he would soon set his sights on another local Spanish beauty by the name of Juanita Martinez. Or was it Juanita Gutierrez? No marriage certificate has yet been located, and there does seem to be some debate as to the young lady's actual last name. Some think she was the sister of Pat's second wife, Apollinaria Gutierrez. But both Paulita Maxwell and Paco Anea claimed that Juanita's maiden name was indeed Martinez. This is further backed up by at least one of Garrett's children. And according to Paco, in his book I Buried Billy, Pat and Juanita tied the knot there at Fort Sumner in November of 1879. Interestingly enough, a young bandit known as Billy Bonnie attended the wedding, as did several of his associates, guys like Charlie Bowdry and Tom Folliard. Quick side note, speaking of old Tom. Turns out that I, and many, many others, have been all wrong when it comes to Folliard's last name. I referred to him as Tom O'Folliard, O with an apostrophe, kind of like an Irish name, O'Reilly or O'Sullivan or O'Connor, in the series I did on Billy the Kid. And that's how I've always referred to Tom, and the way I've seen his name in nearly every single history book I've ever picked up. Turns out the O was just his middle initial. Census records do prove that Tom's actual surname was simply Folliard. According to Mark Lee Gardner, the O'Folliard, last name doesn't even exist. So sorry about that, Tom. Now, sadly, Pat's marriage to Juanita would be very short-lived. Accounts vary, because of course they do, but it appears Juanita may have collapsed very shortly after the wedding ceremony, like that very night, followed by her possibly passing away the next day. Like I said, this just depends on which version you read. Others say that Juanita would linger for weeks, and historian Leon Metz theorizes that Juanita possibly died from a miscarriage. Even Pat's son Jarvis, when interviewed years later, didn't know very many details, only that his daddy was married before marrying his mother. Now I did a little bit more digging, and it looks like as recently as September of 2021, Juanita finally got a headstone at the cemetery there at Fort Sumner. Her original burial location is unknown, but this new marker isn't far from where Billy and his pals are resting. FYI, in case you're like me and you've heard or read speculations that Pat was somehow involved in Juanita's death, there is no evidence or proof so much as hinting to such a thing. At least none that I can find. If you know something to the contrary, if you've got a legitimate source, please don't hesitate to let me know, josh at wildwestextra.com. Turns out there's quite a bit of misinformation concerning the life of Pat Garrett. Imagine that. Like the rumor that he fled to New Mexico after abandoning a wife and kids in Texas. Or that he killed somebody in Louisiana. There's no proof of any of that. Hopefully gonna bust a few more myths and long-held misconceptions during this series. The ones I just mentioned aren't that big, but there's a couple that we'll get to later on that I think really color people's views of certain historical events. And these are things that are just blatantly not true. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Right now, in our timeline, it's still 1878, and Pat Garrett, not yet 29 years of age, is a widower. But I reckon life goes on, right? Even if his employment for Pete Maxwell didn't. Much like his first marriage, this job for Pete would be a relatively short affair. The two had some sort of falling out, resulting in Garrett calling it quits and trying his hand at several different business ventures. Allegedly, I should point out that there's not a lot of hard evidence for these various careers either. But in no particular order, the story goes that Pat opened up a butcher shop, but it went out of business after he was caught slaughtering stolen cattle. He possibly started his own restaurant or eating establishment, as is hinted at in Young Guns 2. He's said to have raised hogs for a bit, partnered in a grocery business, and eventually he went in with Beaver Smith in his Fort Sumner saloon. According to a friend, Pat was a, quote, working devil. He'd work at anything, end quote. And yeah, while staying there at Fort Sumner, Pat Garrett absolutely got to know the notorious BTK, or as you may know him, Billy the Kid. Per Mark Lee Gardner, quote, Garrett and the Kid were not good friends at Fort Sumner, but they were not enemies either. They saw each other frequently enough, and they had a healthy respect for each other, certainly each other's ability to take care of himself. Garrett was usually serious and the kid usually boisterous, and they each had a reputation as a better than average shot with a six gun. End quote. Now, I do feel the need to offer up a bit of clarification when it comes to this friendship between Pat and Billy, one that's somewhat in contradiction to what Mr. Gardner wrote, as well as in contradiction to what I, myself, have personally said. I wrote a lengthy addition to the Wild West newsletter recently about this topic. You can give it a read by heading on over to wildwestjosh.substack.com or going to wildwestextra.com, hitting the newsletter icon up top. But long story short, I have in the past stated pretty boldly that Billy and Pat were not friends. Not really. And even though I add that disclaimer of not really to the statement, I do regret putting it in such a way as I now feel like I was kind of being misleading. So let me state for the record that yes, I, Josh, the host of the Wild West Extravaganza, do believe that Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid were friends. However, I also believe that this friendship is somewhat blown out of proportion, and if Pat and Billy were alive today, their relationship status on Facebook would be set to, it's complicated. So here's what we know. When Pat first arrived at Fort Sumner, Billy was busy down in Lincoln County, attempting to avenge the death of his employer, John Tunstall. Little something known as the Lincoln County War. Maybe you've heard of it. And following the Battle of Lincoln, the kid and what was left of the regulators would take to spend time at the old fort, as well as Roswell and Las Vegas and even Texas. But yeah, Billy did seem to have a special place in his heart for Fort Sumner. And when there, he spent a considerable amount of time either at Hargrove Saloon or over at Beaver's Joint, where Pat worked. Remember, Billy didn't drink, but he did love to gamble, as did Garrett. There's no denying that Billy and Pat knew and spent time with each other. But were they truly friends? Well, in the eyes of Paulita Maxwell, they certainly were. And damn good friends at that. Paulita stated that Pat was as close a friend to Billy had in Fort Sumner. And that if Garrett was low on cash, he borrowed from Billy and vice versa. If Billy was broke, he borrowed from Pat. Furthermore, Paulita said that the pair were known as the long and short of it and thick as two peas in a pod. They played cards together, would go to dances together, and even engage in friendly shooting competitions. So there you have it. That's from somebody who knew both men very well. That said, once again, I'll refer to that newsletter I wrote as I go way more into detail than I'm going to right now. I do think that this friendship gives the false impression that Billy and Pat, at the very least, rode together. So let me just state this very clearly in case there's any confusion. First of all, Pat Garrett was never involved in the Lincoln County War. Like, not at all. And that's not Josh's opinion. That's just fact. There's also no documentable evidence showing that Garrett and the kid ever committed crimes together. While I don't doubt that Pat may have stolen a cow or two, hell who didn't back in those days, he was not a member of Billy's inner circle of stock thieves. He wasn't part of the kid's quote-unquote gang, nor was Pat Garrett a Lincoln County regulator. Matter of fact, Pat also had other friends that were on the opposing side of the Lincoln County War. Furthermore, contrary to popular belief, Pat was not elected sheriff with the idea that it takes a thief to catch a thief. When Garrett pinned on that badge, he was a law-abiding, tax-paying citizen. This was not a Henry Hill from Goodfellas situation where Pat was going to be prosecuted if he didn't turn on the kid. A lot of the movies and other works of fiction will have you believe that Pat and Billy were outlaw buddies whose bond was forged in blood and hardship. In truth, there is no proof of that whatsoever. I do believe they were friends but I don't think they were BFFs. And their relationship seems to have existed completely within the confines of Fort Sumner. They piled around together, they gambled together, they might have even gone whoring together, and they had many a shooting competition. But that's about it. I think the reason so many historians downplay this friendship is just due to everybody else blowing it way out of proportion. I don't think that's a very good reason, though. I'm by no means a historian, and I do offer up my own opinions probably more than I should. But I also shouldn't let those opinions change the way that I report on historical events. So yeah, Pat and Billy were friends, but that friendship was not as deep as portrayed in certain movies, especially Young Guns 2. Hope I explained that uh, adequately. Now interestingly enough, Pat and Billy seemed to be neck and neck as far as marksmanship was concerned. According to Paulita Maxwell, Billy was a better shot than Pat. Others, however, considered Garrett to be the more accurate shootist. Pat would later say of Billy that he was no better than the majority of men who were constantly handling and using six shooters. He shot well, though, and he shot well under all circumstances, whether in danger or not. And that last bit, I think, says it all. Not only about Billy the Kid, but all the other so called gunfighters. I think history has proved that it's the man who can keep his head who wins the fight. You can practice your quick draw in a mirror all day long, but when bullets start flying towards you, when your target starts shooting back, That's when shit gets real. That's the true test. And it's a test that both Garrett and the kid passed with flying colors time and time again. A little over two months following the death of Juanita Martinez, and three days after Billy gunned down Joe Grant there at Fort Sumner, Pat got married for a second time. The 29-year-old Garrett and teenaged Apolinaria Gutierrez swapped vows to Anton Chico in mid-January 1880. It was also around this time that Pat really cemented that deadly reputation of his. Some Comanche had stolen a small herd of horses from over near Roswell, and Pat led the posse that went in pursuit. Once the hostiles became aware that they were being followed, they killed off half of the stolen ponies, just in an effort to lighten their loads and travel even faster. The posse, upon finding the dead horses and realizing that they didn't have near enough food or water to keep on chasing these lords of the southern plains, ended up turning back for home. All except for Pat and a few of the toughest hombres. They kept on the hunt. And a week later, they returned, looking mean as hell and carrying a large sack of moccasins, and leading a string of recovered horses. Now, this story comes from Leon Metz in his biography of Garrett, and Mr. Metz lists as a reference an interview conducted in the November 27, 1949 edition of the El Paso Times. I tried and failed to locate said interview, so I'm not aware of any other particulars. If this is true, though, I think it's safe to say that at least a few of those Comanche warriors did not make it back to their lady loves. As you can imagine, this impressed quite a few folks. Not only was Pat a giant of a man physically, but he had now proved his sand and shown a little grit. And as it turns out, grit was exactly what a few prominent New Mexicans were looking for, namely the cattle king himself, John Chisholm, and the so-called father of Roswell and former Missouri bushwhacker, Captain Joseph Lea. Both men were more than tired of the rampant thievery and chaos caused by the Lincoln County War in its aftermath, especially when it was negatively impacting their bottom line. What's more, they realized the potential of New Mexico. If they and other well-to-do men of means hoped to lure investors to the territory, and for the territory to one day become a state, they'd have to establish a little bit of law and order. And while Billy the Kid certainly wasn't the only outlaw who was out there stealing with both hands, by 1880, he had become the most well-known. And it was Billy who they soon set their sights on. Now, at that time, the sheriff of Lincoln County was George Kimball. And although he and the Kid had their differences, Sheriff Kimball wasn't exactly all that gung-ho about apprehending him. Hell, him and Billy were even known to play cards together on occasion. As such, Leah and Chisholm and other powerful and influential New Mexicans decided they'd try to recruit somebody who was not only popular enough to run against Sheriff Kimball in the upcoming election, but someone tough enough to take out their biggest perceived thorn in the side, William H. Bonney. And that someone was our very own Patrick Floyd Jarvis Garrett, aka Juan Largo. And hell, why not? Like I said, Pat was liked by everybody. At least he was before he ran for sheriff. He had shown that he had nerve, he could fight, he could ride, and perhaps best of all, he knew Billy the Kid personally. And yeah, when Garrett was approached, he was more than receptive to the idea of running for sheriff. If they had to pull his leg, if he hesitated at making this decision, I'm not aware of it. Now, this alone is enough for some to just outright dismiss Garrett as a backstabbing son of a bitch. But is this sentiment justified? I don't know. Once again, how close were he and Billy, really? And does it even really matter? You know, on one hand, I got a lot of friends who, although we're not exactly besties, I also wouldn't go snitch on them, much less pin on a badge and try to arrest them myself. Then again, these same friends aren't wanted for murder, and they're also not out there stealing from damn near everybody. And devil's advocate, this would be a big step up for Garrett. This was a guy who was raising pigs and slaughtering buffalo and herding cattle not all that long ago. To go from that to being a respected and elected public official, especially the sheriff of a county as massive as Lincoln County was, this could be a serious life-altering career decision. And unlike Billy Bonney, Pat had a wife to consider. He was thinking about the future. Now, I'm not so much trying to defend Garrett's decision here as I'm trying to understand it. Was he just really that big of a law and order guy? And if he was, where's the fault in that? And once again, I don't know that I would do something similar. For what, a paycheck? A steady job? A legacy? I'm just thinking out loud here. Alright, Fact of the matter is, Garrett would accept this challenge. He and his new bride of pollinaria, moved to Roswell as Fort Sumner was not part of Lincoln County. And in no time flat, other powerful and influential men got behind his campaign. And even Billy Bonney's old nemesis, Jimmy Dolan. I can't say for certain how Billy must have felt when he heard the news, but it's safe to say that he wasn't all that excited about Pat running for sheriff. Hell, the kid actually campaigned for the incumbent, George Kimball. As for Paulita Maxwell, she remembers being shocked at the news, saying that Pat's only qualification was his friendship with Billy and that what he was doing, while not against the law, went against the code of the frontier, turning on a friend. What's more, Paulita asserted that Billy knew exactly what this meant. That Garrett's one job was to kill or arrest him, and from that point on, it was a war to the death between the two of them. So much for friendship, huh? And when it came election time in November of 1880, Pat claimed a resounding victory, receiving nearly twice as many votes as Kimball. Now, Pat was elected on November 2nd, 1880, but his term wouldn't officially begin until January of 1881. However, Kimball did deputize Pat and then just step aside, allowing Garrett to run the show. On paper, he was just a deputy, and would remain as such for the next two months. In reality, he was, in all but name, the new, real sheriff of Lincoln County. And you better believe he hit the ground running. Unfortunately, we're just going to have to wait until next week to discuss what happens next. Obviously, we went pretty in-depth into Pat's hunt for the kid during the Billy the Kid series recently, but this time we're going to look at things from Garrett's perspective, the various tactics and tricks he employed as well as the direct aftermath. And we're going to be answering the question once and for all as to whether or not Pat ever received that reward money that Governor Wallace put on Billy's head. Thank you so much for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, complaints, recipes, whatever, please do not hesitate to hit me up at josh at wildwestextra, or just head on over to wildwestextra.com and hit that contact button. While you're there, check out a few more true tales from the Wild and Wooly West. And real quick, before we say our goodbyes, I do have a big announcement to make. I've recently partnered with the great Lindsey Graham and a few other amazing history podcasters to bring you essentially what I consider to be a history lover's wet dream. This new project is called Into History, and it's made by history lovers and for history lovers. If you're not familiar with Lindsey Graham, no, it's not the politician. The Lindsey I'm referring to is the award-winning podcast host and producer, Behind hits like History Daily, the audio drama 1865, American History Tellers, American Scandal, American Elections, Wicked Game, and more. And joining us on Into History is Professor Greg Jackson from History That Doesn't Suck, Ian Sanders from Cold War Conversations, Lori Davis from Her Side of History, Rich Napolitano from Shipwrecks and Sea Dogs, and my raggedy ass Josh from the Wild West Extravaganza. There are other people involved, people with shows way bigger than mine, but I can't name them just yet, but trust me, these guys and gals know what's up as far as history is concerned. Okay, cool. So what the hell is Into History? Well, I'm glad you asked. Long story short, Into History is an audio subscription channel providing ad-free listening, early releases, and exclusive access to high-quality history podcasts subscribers will get access to all the shows i just mentioned plus exclusive curated feeds by topic and interest like the first one that's already available on all things revolution you'll get a weekly newsletter that i will be contributing to there's a community discord server where we can all gather and talk about stuff that happened a long time ago and there's a book club y'all there's even going to be live streaming events pay-per-view events and a special vip forum with creator access When I said earlier that this is a history lover's wet dream, I was not exaggerating. This is something I've always wanted to be able to do with the Wild West Extravaganza. I just didn't have the time or resources. Well, with Into History, I now have both. Alright, fine. What does this mean for the Wild West Extravaganza? First of all, nothing is going to change here with the show. I'm still going to be putting out content just like I'm doing right now. Nobody's going to tell me what I can or cannot say, nothing like that. And you'll still be able to listen to the Wild West Extravaganza wherever you're currently listening. I'll also continue sending out the newsletter, and nothing's going to change there either. Now, if you want the ad-free version of this show, you're going to have to subscribe to Into History. Plus, there's all the other stuff I just mentioned. The upcoming live streams, the collaborations with the other podcasters who I listed earlier, the book club, and this is a big one, exclusive Wild West Extravaganza content that you'll only be able to access via Into History. So, what do I mean by exclusive content? I'll give you a for instance. Over the last few years, I've probably had no less than 100 emails asking me to do an episode on Claude Dallas. I've hesitated simply because I don't really think Claude Dallas falls under the umbrella of Old West history. Well, guess what? It's not ready yet, but I have already started researching an episode, and you already know that that bad boy is only going to be available on Into History. Same goes for a series on Daniel Boone that I've been wanting to do for the longest time. Like I said, both of these are still in the works, but the only place you're going to be able to hear them at is Into History. And there's going to be more. This is going to be a regular thing. I will be, on a very regular basis, adding bonus content on Into History that will only be available there. By the way, a membership doesn't just give you access to my bonus content, but the bonus and ad-free content of all those other podcasters who I mentioned earlier. And in some cases, like History Daily, you'll gain access to the entire back catalog. All right, I'm not just going to keep going on and on about it. We'll talk more about this in the future. I just wanted to let you know that this is a thing. It has launched already. You can sign up at IntoHistory.com, but just keep in mind that so far, it's just a soft launch. A good chunk of the features have not yet been rolled out. And some of the stuff is ready. The Discord server is all set up. You can go there right now and join the Wild West Extravaganza room. Say hi and we'll shoot the shit. The curated Revolution-themed feed is available. The live stream events won't be rolled out for a little bit. I don't have a hard date on that just yet. I do know what the first couple of books for the book club will be. They seem pretty badass, but I cannot divulge that information at this moment. All right, that's intohistory.com. Like I said, a history lover's wet dream, but just a soft launch as of this moment. Like, it, it literally just launched. Uh, the features are being rolled out in waves, but right now, there is an early bird sell. I believe until the end of July, you get 50% off. So even at the top tier, where you have access to everything, you're only looking at $9 a month. And there's a seven-day free trial, so what do you have to lose? That's intohistory.com all right till next wednesday try not to shoot any irishman and don't let your sister marry anyone named larkin adios